pans in three different passages of Scripture. Now, this is going to take some balancing, okay? Somebody called that Bible gymnastics one time. And I think, yeah, maybe so. 2 Kings 24 is one. Sorry, folks, it's just a necessity tonight. 2 Chronicles 36, Jeremiah 36, they all pertain to the same subject. 2 Kings 24, might as well go ahead and turn there now to all these. We'll be in the neighborhood of all these. 2 Chronicles 36, Jeremiah 36. And I have an announcement to make. Jimmy didn't make all the announcements today. We have come to the end of First and Second Kings. Now, parting will be such sweet sorrow, right? But I have a question. Is this the end of Israel as a nation as well? Is this the end? Does this spell the end of it? Is this, is this where it ends? We've already lost the northern kingdom of Israel, you know, the divided nation of Israel in the north, Judah in the south. We've already lost the northern kingdom to Assyria. They're gone. And, and now, as far as Judah is concerned, there was a revival under a small revival under Josh, Josiah for a while, but that came to a screeching halt with his death. That's over with. And now in the last two chapters of 2 Kings, we're going to watch literally as Judah implodes before our very eyes. It's not going to be pretty. Uh, Babylon's going to conquer them. Judah's going to be sent into exile out of their own land. Now, secular historians, looking back on this time, they're, they're going to say, well, the reason that happened is because of the might of the nations like Babylon who came in and conquered Judah. And it's true that Babylon did conquer Judah, but there is something far, more, something far greater going on behind the scenes than just that. We can talk about politics and economics and military might as it pertains to Israel and Judah in that time period, but something greater is going on. The real truth behind the fall of Judah has got to do with spiritual reasons. It has to do with the Lord, and it has to do with his, and his will. There are spiritual truths at work in God's judgment upon Judah, and all of this relates to the Lord and how he deals with his chosen nation. Now, tonight, as we look at this, I decided just to make this simple as possible. I just want to make three observations concerning this judgment upon Judah and their final days as a kingdom. Three observations First of all, there is an intentional, intentional compliance with evil. That's the first observation I, I, I see here. There is an intentional compliance with evil. You're going to see it again and again in these last days as we look at this. Note how the final kings of Judah are characterized as we look at this. There are four kings of Judah in the last 22 years before Judah falls, and uh, their names are Jehoahaz. Now, I want you to memorize these names. Jehoiakim, K-I-M, Jehoiakim, to make it more difficult for us, C-H-I-N, and Zedekiah. Now, as we look at these four kings as they're characterized, see if you can spot what they have in common. Now, be careful as you look at this, okay? You may, you may miss it. First of all, let's see what they have in common. Jehoahaz, look at 2 Kings 23. said so the neighborhood, right? Not necessarily that. 2 Kings 23, 31 and 32. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. All right? That's Jehoahaz. Secondly, look at Jehoiakim, K-I-M. Look at 2 Kings 23, 36. 2 Kings 23, 36. I know this is going to be somewhat confusing with a lot of references, but... Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, 
reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebediah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Third, let's look at Jehoiakim with the C-H-I-N on the end. Look at 2 Kings 24.8. 2 Kings 24.8, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And fourthly, look at Zedekiah, 2 Kings 24.18. 2 Kings 24.18, Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Jehoiakim had done. Now, you tell me, what did these four kings have in common? What? They did evil. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? All of them did. Evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I'm, I'm sure by now, if you've stayed with us through First and Second Kings from the beginning, you are not surprised, right? You're not surprised. Haven't we seen this again and again? And uh, this is the story of Israel and Judah. This is the story of Israel and Judah. It's the story of mankind as well. Not much has changed since Genesis chapter 6, by the way, in case you haven't been paying attention in the Old Testament. Uh, we're told in Genesis 6, 5, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord looked down and he said, Man, this whole thing is... And the Lord knew this. He wasn't surprised by this, but he saw the evil of mankind. That's in Genesis 6. So by the time we get to the end of 2 Kings, we read the same thing. Same thing is happening. In both cases, references made to the fact that the Lord beholds all this. He sees this happening. He's able to see this. He takes notice of it. You know, he sees the wickedness of man. What we do when we do evil, it does not escape his notice. He sees everything that happens. We don't get away with evil scot-free as if the Lord wasn't looking. He knows exactly what we're doing. He's watching He's weighing hearts. He's evaluating lives. This is what he does. He's always, you read in the Old Testament, you see again and again, he, he's looking at the hearts. He's searching for hearts that are searching for him. He says that again and again. The history of Israel and Judah is a history scarred by evil. And that's the history of mankind. And if it wasn't for the Lord's restraint, now we've seen some bad guys, some bad kings, but if it wasn't for the Lord's restraint, you would see far worse than we've already seen. So that's how the, the final four kings of Judah... Coming into the home stretch, that's how they're characterized. These guys are all about evil. Now, let me focus in particular on two of the kings, uh, because of the four kings, two of these guys reigned only three months. They didn't uh, do a whole lot. Not much is said about them. Two of the kings, far more detail is made about them. And so, I want to look at Jehoiakim, first of all, with a K-I-M. Look at 2 Kings 23, 34, and 35. 2 Kings 23, 34, and 35. Jehoiakim, okay? This is the second of the, of the last four kings. Pharaoh Necho. We talked about Pharaoh Necho, who is out there wreaking havoc on different nations. Uh, Pharaoh of Egypt. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah's father. He changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land, each according to his valuation, to give to Pharaoh Necho. Now, all we're told about in 2 Kings about Jehoiakim is that he is made, he's made king by Pharaoh Necho, first of all. 
who had influence at that particular time. That's back and forth in history. And then he taxes the people. He's, a tax is imposed upon him, upon his nation by Egypt. And so the king in turn taxes the nation to, to, to pay the taxes back to Pharaoh. That's all it says here. But there is much more regarding Jehoiakim. And the prophet Jeremiah tells us what that is. Now, let me just make a reference to Jeremiah 22. First of all, you don't have to turn there. But in Jeremiah 22, we find out that Jehoiakim, during this time, is building a palace for himself. New palace for himself. Even though the economy is totally falling, falling apart, he decides to build a new palace. I think I need a new palace. Hey, you're about ready to face judgment and be, be destroyed, but you're going to build a new palace. Brilliant. He does that. And he, what else does he do? He refuses to pay the workers for their efforts. The guys that built for him, he doesn't pay them for what they did. You ever been in that position on the job and you're <laughs> I've seen some heads shaking up and down. You never forgot that paycheck you missed, did you? When you didn't get paid. He's condemned for that in Jeremiah 22. And we also find out Jehoiakim sheds innocent blood. This is a bad guy, a very evil man. But if you want to get to the real reason behind what, why he does what he does, look at Jeremiah 36. Go to Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah 36, and there's a lot involved in these chapters, but the Lord gives a message to Jeremiah, a message of judgment. He says, Babylon's coming. Jeremiah keeps prophesying again and again. I want you guys to know, he prophesies to Judah, Babylon's coming, judgment's coming, it's going to happen. And they say, no, it's not. This guy's a traitor. What are you saying this for? And he says it again and again, and he's persecuted for it. And so the Lord gives a message to Jeremiah about the destruction, coming destruction of of, uh, Judah by Babylon. He dictates the message to his scribe, Baruch. He says, I want you to write this down. This is the word of God. And they deliver the message to King Jehoiakim, okay? And a guy named Jehudi, of all people, is going to read this message to the king. Look at chapter, uh, Jeremiah 36, verse 21. They're reading this message of, of uh, judgment to the king, King Jehoiakim. Verse 21. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it out of the chamber of Elishama the scribe, and Jehudi read it to the king as well as to the, all the officials who stood before the king, reading the word of God. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the brazier before him. When Jehudi had read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife, knife and threw it into the fire that was in the brazier. And he kept doing that. As he read, he would cut some more until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the brazier. Cut the pieces of, of the scripture Throw it into the fire. Yet the king and all his servants who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments, even though Elnathan and Deliah, Gemariah, pleaded with the king not to burn the scroll. He would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiah, the king's son, Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Tried to persecute him, but the Lord hid Jeremiah. Here's a guy who has total disregard for the word of God, could care less about what it says, to the point that he destroys it, throws it into the fire. Now, you remember Josiah, his father, uh, that when he, uh, his relative, when Josiah heard the word of God, they discovered in the temple, remember what he did? What did he do? He tore his garments, and he was horrified that he, judgment was coming to Judah, he was horrified, and he repented, right? Humbled himself before God and wanted to find out more about it. And so he did the right thing, but not Jehoiakim. 
He doesn't do that. Suffice to say, this man is an evil man, and you see why. And then there's Zedekiah. I wanted to say something about Zedekiah. Kind of a sinner was Zedekiah. Well, turn to Jeremiah 37. Jeremiah 37. Look at Jeremiah 37, verse 1. Now Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had made king in the land of Judah, reigned as king in the place of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither, listen to verse 2, neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord which he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. I just read a survey that uh, Lifeway Christian uh, bookstore did. I don't know who, who they, where they did this at, but of a number of Christians. And they said, what do you think is essential to being a Christian? And out of all the respondents, however many there were, only 42% of Christians, supposedly, said that they thought the Word of God was essential. So reading the, Word, reading the Bible was an essential thing, an important thing in their life. 42% of believers, allegedly, that were, that were surveyed, said, oh, the Word of God is important. The rest of them thought, didn't think it was. That stunned me. I was, it didn't stun me because I already knew it was true. I already knew this. But I was still stunned anyway. That's what this reminds me of. Okay, and so they don't listen to the words of the Lord. Verse 3, Jeremiah 37, 3. Yet King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, we've got all these names again, <laughs> Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest of Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, Please pray to the Lord our God on our behalf. Pray to God for us. Uh, you know, Zedekiah is worried about the Babylonians. Uh, he's worried about them, and so he, requ- he requests prayer. But if I was Jeremiah the prophet, I think I would say to him, wait a minute, let me get this straight, King Zedekiah. You don't want anything to do with the word of God whatsoever. Zero. And yet, you want me to pray for you? Does that seem contradictory to anybody else, or is it just me? You know, we've encountered people like this, haven't we? People who reject God's word, and they ask what? They ask you to pray for them. Have you ever had that happen? We've, we've had Wednesday night prayer requests. I got a friend who uh, is at work, uh, and uh, he doesn't want anything to do with God, but now he's in a crisis, and he wants us to pray for him. And so they approach you for that, and, of course, we pray for them, right? We're glad to pray for them. We pray for their illnesses. We pray for their children. We pray for their struggles. We pray for their marriages, whatever it may be, and we pray for their salvation, and we should do that. But what is sad is when a person who is in a crisis is just simply looking for a quick supernatural fix. Maybe God can, who knows, maybe God, I'll try this. Maybe God can work in my life and make something happen that'll, that'll be good for me. Even though he has no intention whatsoever of coming to the gospel or of obeying the scripture, none of that at all, that happens a lot. Now, don't misunderstand me. We want people to come to us and we want to pray for them. We want to help them, you know, we want, them to, we want to minister to them. But some people are just trying to get out of a crisis. And I, I tell you, you're not going to see them again until they get into another crisis. And this is Zedekiah. This is how he acts. This is how he does. He wants God's help, but he refuses God's word. And not only that, he plays politics. This guy Zedekiah, if we had time to read all this, he plays politics with Jeremiah's life. On the one hand, depending on the circumstances, of course, depending on the circumstances, he's going to base his judgment on that. On one occasion, Zedekiah's officials asked Jeremiah to be put to death. And they said, they, they go to the king, can you put this guy to death? We're tired of his prophesying. And the king says this, he's in your hands, the king can do nothing against you. Well, my question is, you're the king. You have authority. You can protect Jeremiah. What are you doing? 
You can protect him. But then later on, later on when he needs the counsel of Jeremiah, he promises to keep Jeremiah alive. That's just how he, he's a politician. You know, puts his finger to the wind and says, sees which way it's blowing that day. That's what he does. Now, that's, that's the kind of people we're dealing with here. People who are evil, want nothing to do with God, want nothing to do with his word. All these kings are supposed to be leading the nation of Judah to, to the Lord under the authority of Yahweh. Instead, they totally ignore him. They dismiss him. They reject him as if he was more of a nuisance to them than, he, than the sovereign of God that he is. And the sacred scripture, the record of scripture takes note of each one of them, takes note of their evil. And again, we learn the lesson that the Lord is evaluating the hearts of the kings. The Lord is evaluating the hearts of all people. He knows our character. We cannot hide from him. All that we do happens under his eye. Now, we look at this and you say, well, that's Old Testament kings. We expect these guys to be like this, right? But we are New Testament saints. Yeah, and guess what? Evil is still a problem. Nothing has changed after all this time. It's still a reality. And even though God's people have their sins forgiven, think about this, and the indwelling spirit, and you have the word of God in your possession, in your hand even, and you have the access to prayer, you have a new nature, you have the fellowship of the saints, yet, with all this, we still have an ongoing battle with sin. Every one of us do. I'm always intrigued by Paul's words in Romans 7. I read Romans 7 and I think, wow. The Apostle Paul had a, had a battle with sin. You know, he talks about that, his, his ongoing conflict with sin. He, he says, I want to do the right thing, but I find that I have this battle within. Romans seven twenty one. he says this, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. That's amazing. You know, we may be a new creation in Christ, but we are still in this body, and we have to deal with evil. We have to deal with sin. It's always going to be an issue. We're going to have to deal with it. It's going to rear its ugly head. And, you know, we're going to do what Paul said in Romans 8, put it to death by the Spirit. That's what it says in Romans eight thirteen. put the sin to death by the Spirit. And so we have to deal with these things. And they had to deal with these things. And they didn't deal with sin very good at all. But there's this intentional compliance with evil. You know, there's not to be any compliance at all with sin. There's not to be any compliance or any alliance with sin at, either, at all either. But the, the downfall of Judah came about because the leadership and the people and everybody, except for the occasional revivals, made it a practice to be in compliance with sin. They made it a practice. There's good kings of Judah, yes, we read about the good kings of Judah, but there's evil kings in the, in, in the midst of those, and there's even the good, the good kings. We've seen, how many times have we seen the good kings at the end of their life or some sometime in their life, they totally blew it again and again. You know, what's, what's amazing to me is that here they are disintegrating. The nation is disintegrating. Half the nation is already gone, more, more than half. And yet, they haven't changed. They're still pursuing evil. Again and again, they're pursuing it. They don't bother to turn back to God. They're not, they're, they displease the Lord, even though the nation is going by the wayside. There's this intentional compliance with evil. But I, but I see something else in these passages, another observation. There's a consistent fulfillment of Scripture. A consistent fulfillment of Scripture. That theme runs through this whole section. You cannot miss this theme as you read these chapters. For example, turn to 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 1. 2 Kings 24, 1. And it says there, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. 
Then Jehoiakim turns and rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites, bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets, surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed. For the, He filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. The Lord would not forgive. Jehoiakim is king at this time. He's serving Babylon. Why? He's not serving the Lord. That's why. It's either one or the other. He, served, he decided he wanted to serve not the Lord. So he, the Lord says, okay, you're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve Babylon. And he does that. And he's forced to serve Babylon. But Jehoiakim is not the brightest bulb in the pack. So he decides to rebel against the authority of Nebuchadnezzar, even though he does not stand a chance of succeeding at all. Now, you might think that after the rebellion, in verse, in the, words, the next words in verse 2 are going to say something like this, and it came to pass that Babylon arose up and attacked him. Is that what it says? Look at verse 2. It says, the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, Syrians, Moabites, Ammonites. Who sent these guys? The Lord did. This is the Lord's doing. You know, one of the things that the, the covenant with David, remember 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, we talked about this for a long time, referred to it several times. One of the things that covenant said was God would give uh, the kings of David, Davidic kings rest from their enemies if they would obey him and live for him and so on. He'd give them rest from their enemies. But now the enemies are attacking Judah. And the Lord's orchestrating this attack. He's behind this attack totally. But this itself is a fulfillment of Scripture because 2 Samuel says that if they don't obey, if the, if the Davidic kings do not obey God, it says he's going to uh, punish them, he's going to punish their iniquity with the rod of men, it says. And here he's using men to do this. He's using nations to punish Judah. And that's, that was made clear to David back in 2 Samuel 7. That is the fulfillment of Scripture, and you see that there. But there's also a second fulfillment here. Look at verse 2 again. It says that the Lord sent these enemies against Judah to destroy it. Now think about that for a minute. The Lord wanted to destroy Judah. The, the Judah that he loved <laughs> all these years, the Judah that he cared for. And now he says, they're in total rebellion against me. I'm going to destroy them. And verse 2, the end of it says, this is according to the word of the Lord, which he has spoken through his servants the prophets. Prophecy is being fulfilled. Again and again you see this. And the focus in verses 3 and 4 is on Manasseh. Manasseh. Do you remember Manasseh when we talked about him, how evil that guy was, over-the-top evil? Even though he repented later in life, God says, enough's enough. I'm going to judge Judah now. I'm, this is it. Look, go back to 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21, verse 10. This is a, a prophecy given... During Manasseh's reign, 2 Kings 21.10, Now the Lord spoke through his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he did everything under the sun you can do wrong, that's the way of sin, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites who were before him, and also uh, be, made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem, and Judah, that everyone who hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I'm going to use that as my judgment measure, the wicked Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. 
wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. and They will become as plunder and spoil to their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger. When, since when? Since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. You know, Manasseh is not the only reason for judgment. He's the last straw. They've been sinning all this time. He is the final straw for judgment, though. He, he's, he, he tries to out-evil everybody. He does his best to do that. And you can see the Lord's detailed judgment here in these, in these verses. He says, I'm going to bring nerve-shattering calamity upon Judah. It's going to be really bad what I do here. He's going to go wipe it clean like a dish. He's going to abandon his inheritance. He's going to give his enemies, Judah over to its enemies. Why? Because they provoked him to anger. The Lord's long-suffering. We all know the Lord's long-suffering and merciful, but he won't tolerate evil forever. There's an end to his patience in this. Look at 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings 23, 26. Again, another prophecy. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel. I will cast off Jerusalem. Amazing statement. The Jerusalem he loved. This city which I have chosen and the temple of which I said my name shall be there, it's all going to be gone. I'm getting rid of all of it. It's been prophesied in 2 Kings 24 and 25 is the fulfillment of prophecy. Let's go to another one. Look at 2 Kings 24 verse 10. 2 Kings 24 10. Watch, his, watch the judgment upon, unfold upon Judah here and upon Jerusalem. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem. The city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city. While his servants were besieging it, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother, and his servants, and his captains, and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. Babylon's taking these treasures away. And cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor. Ten thousand captives, all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remain except the poorest people of the land. So he led Jehoiakim away into exile to Babylon, also the king's mother, the king's wives, and his officials, and the leading men of the land. He led them away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the men of valor, 7,000, the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these the king of Babylon brought into exile to Babylon. All this destruction happened because, just as the Lord had said, verse 13 says, just as the Lord had said. Now, in Jeremiah 20, verse 4, let me just read this to you. The Lord had prophesied through Jeremiah. He said, I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. says it again. He shall carry them captive to Babylon. He shall strike them down with a sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city. Keep this passage in mind we just read. I'll give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, all the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemies, who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And that is exactly what's happening. Scripture is being fulfilled. The 
the valuables of Jerusalem are taken away. All that time Solomon spent developing all those gold cups and all that he did, it's all, it's all being taken away now. Uh, the, the skilled workers are being taken away. The military men, the proven soldiers are being taken away. The brain trust of Judah is being taken away. The only people left are the unskilled poor people. It's all that's left in the land. Maybe they were the most fortunate of all for being left there. Now, the last thing people want to hear about is an angry God. People don't want to hear about that, right? You talk to people all the time. God's not, my God's not angry. He's not judgmental. They haven't read the Bible or else they would know differently, right? You know, but in this section, we have a detailed description of what it's like for sinners to be in the hands of an angry God. This is what's happening here. And understand God, again, God is merciful. When when he's provoked, though, when he's provoked long enough, the axe is going to fall. And scripture is going to be fulfilled. Look at 2 Kings 25, verse 1. Another passage. Talking about the fulfillment of scripture. Now in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army, against Jerusalem. They camped against it and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city... There was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden, though the Chaldeans, same another name for the Babylonians, were all around the city, and they went out by way of the Arabots, an escape route the king had designed in advance. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook, the, overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king, Zedekiah, and they brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah. That was his headquarters at the time. And he passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. What a horrible destruction. Just like God said, the ears of people are going to tingle when they hear about this. You know, Babylon had Jerusalem under siege for a couple of years or so. Imagine being, imagine being in the, inside Jerusalem, in, those, in that city during this time. And the enemy's outside building the siege ramp. And, and it took a long time to get through the city wall and, and, and breach it and all these things until they got in. And, you're, and you know this is it's a matter of time. And you're in there and you're frightened probably. Can you imagine this? You're probably frightened to no end. You're trying to survive. But in a long siege, what happened was there was often a famine. No food. You run out of food. Where are you going to get the food? You can't go outside. They're going to kill you. And so the strategy was starve the people in the subjection. That's what it takes. You know, the book of Lamentation goes into further detail about this. Let me just read this to you. Lamentations 4, you can jot it down and look at it later. Lamentations 4, verses 9 and 10. Let me just read you what happened here. Lamentations 4, 9. Better are those, this is about the fall of Jerusalem, this book. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. Better to get killed than to starve to death. For they pine away. These people that are hungry, they pine away being stricken. I, I have a hard time going without one meal without thinking I'm starving to death. All right? You know, some of you know what I'm talking about here. Don't, don't act like you don't, okay? They, they pine away being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. Listen to this. This happened during the siege. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. It goes on to say, 
This is ugly. It's a sorrowful, gut-wrenching scene. Lamentations is a very sorrowful book, but that happened. And it happened often during these kind of sieges. It happened here. Well, when the, fall, the wall is finally breached, the, wall that, the protective wall surrounding Jerusalem is finally breached, they get in, the king tries to escape. They, they, on horseback, they're trying to get out of there, going through the Arba, the desert area. They, cap, they, they catch up with him, they capture him, they uh, blind him, or rather they execute his sons before him. Execute his sons, then they blind him. They wanted that to be the last thing he saw. And that's what he had in, in his memory. And Jeremiah, the thing is, Jeremiah had warned Zedekiah, comply with the Babylonians. When the Babylonians come in, surrender. I'm telling you what to do because God's sending judgment. Surrender to these guys. If you surrender them, they'll, they'll, they'll treat you right. This was the word of God. They'll, treat you, uh, they'll, they'll at least comply with you. But if you resist them, you're going to pay the price. You're going to suffer big time. Jeremiah 38 talks about that. Of course, he doesn't listen. Zedekiah is not a guy who listens to the word of God. He doesn't care about the scriptures, right? It's like one of those Christians who don't read the Bible and don't care about that. He refuses to listen to the word, and now it's being fulfilled. Right before his, well, what was his very eyes? Being fulfilled. Look at 2 Kings 25, verse 8. 2 Kings 25, verse 8. Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house, he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon wisely, and the rest of the people, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away in the exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Now the bronze pillars, we spent all that time back in Exodus talking about making the bronze pillars and all this stuff. Now the bronze pillars which were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea which were in the house of the Lord, this was all implements of worship in the temple. The Chaldeans broke in pieces and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots, the shuffles, the snuffers, the spoons, all this used in sacrifice in the sacrificial system. All the bronze vessels which were used in temple service. The captain of the guard also took away the fire pans and the basins. What was fine gold and what was fine silver. The two pillars, the one sea, the stands which Solomon had made. And we talked about how much time and money he invested in that. And had made for the house of the Lord. The bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. It took it all away. It took it all away. And it goes on to talk about in in verses 18 to 21 killing a lot of the officials. You guys can read this later when you get a chance. Second uh, Kings 24 and 25. But if you're wondering why the walls of Jerusalem and the temple had to be rebuilt later on, it's because of this. They destroyed everything. They burned it all. They destroyed the security walls. They took items used for worship. They killed several government officials. They do all this. It prevents Judah from rebelling anymore. They're just destroying everything. They can't rebel anymore, right? There's nothing left, hardly. So obvious was this destruction. Even archaeologists have discovered Babylonian uh, arrowheads of iron and bronze in this area. Again, a fulfillment of Scripture. You can't get around it. The word will always be fulfilled. Whatever whatever it says, it's going to happen. We've seen this again. Always foolish to disobey the word of God. It's always wise to obey the word of God. 
When we go astray from the word, you can count on it. You're going to pay the price for it every time. Every single time you're going to pay the price for it. Just like you can't defy the law of gravity, you can't transgress against the word of God and get away with it. You're not going to. You know, the word of God will always come true. And here there's a prime example of it. But I have a third observation and a final one. There's an encouraging message of hope. Believe it or not, there's an encouraging message of hope. Now, again, please understand the fall of Judah, which is it's a horrible scene. If you read these chapters later on, if you want to read them, uh, it, it's, it's, it's horrible, but it's not because the Lord, is, the Lord is some ogre who takes delight in punishing people. That's not what this is all about. They're offending his holiness. And uh, he warned them repeatedly not to defy uh, his word, but they continue to defy him. And even after the destruction of Babylon, even after Babylon is uh, not Babylon, but Judah is destroyed. After it's destroyed, if you look down at 2 Kings 25, 22 to 26, let me just read this quickly. It says, Now as for the people who were left in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, left, he appointed Gedaliah over them. Gedaliah is the governor, okay? And... Uh, when all, verse 23, when all the captains of their forces and they and their men had heard that king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, you know, they come and meet together. Look at verse 24. Gedaliah swore to them and, the, and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Live in the land, serve the king of Babylon, and it's going to be well with you. That was true. Do what he says. Everything will be okay. But it came about in the 11th month that Ishmael, and you can read about this in Jeremiah, son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama of the royal family, came with ten men and struck Gedaliah down so that he died, along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. You know, Nebuchadnezzar makes this guy Gedaliah governor over the poor people that remain to have order there, and, uh, and yet they kill him. They just can't stop with their evil. They're obsessed with evil. They can't stop doing this. So the Lord stays true to his holiness, and as a result, he says, okay, you're gone. You're going into captivity. This is, who, this is who you are. Now, this is in spite of the fact that the Lord goes out of his way to show compassion. He goes out of his way, and this is not all that happened. There's, there's more that happened. He goes out of his way to show compassion on Look, go with me to 2 Chronicles 36 now. 2 Chronicles 36. You have all your hands, all your fingers in some part of the scripture by now, right? 2 Chronicles 36, verse 11. All this, during this time, God is showing compassion to these people. Uh, and you'll see it here again. Second Chronicles 36, 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord as God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Kind of a dumb thing, right? They're going down rapidly. Uh, furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. They defiled the house of the Lord, which he has sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word. We could label this stupidity at its highest also. It says, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers. He kept doing this. Here, listen to the word of the Lord. Because he had what? He had compassion on his people. On his dwelling place. So he kept warning them. 
But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. There's no solution. I've got to send these people to judgment. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. God has compassion. The Babylonians aren't going to show any compassion. Isn't it better to serve the Lord than the Babylonians? You know, the, pro- the problem did not lie in, in lack of compassion on God's part. It, the problem was in lack of submission to God on the people's part. They weren't willing to submit to God who went out of his way to show love and compassion to them. That's amazing. Now, after all that we've seen, it certainly seems there's no hope for the nation at all. Absolutely no hope left. The circumstances cannot be any bleaker. The clouds couldn't be any, 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 any darker. The skies couldn't be any grayer. Things are looking bad. But even with all this horrible judgment, there's a ray of hope. It's a very slight ray. At first, you can barely see it. But there's a ray of hope for the future. And, that, and that's seen in more than one passage. Look at the last, two verses of, uh, last three verses of 2 Kings 25. This is the end of 2 Kings. Look at 2 Kings 25, 27. Here's the end of 2 Kings. Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him, and he set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. See a glimmer of hope in these verses right here. Seems like a strange way to end 2 Kings, though. Guy's in prison and gets his prison garments changed. The scene changes from where we were. The judgment against Judah. This is 37 years later, down into exile. They're in Babylon in exile now, 37 years later. Strange thing to pick out to end the book of 2 Kings. King Jehoiakim is in captivity with a lot of people from Judah, but a new king comes into power. Evil Merodach is his name. Evil doesn't mean he's an evil man, probably was, but that's not what it is, it's just his name, like Evil Knievel, something like that. Uh, and this guy decides to grant special uh, treatment. To Jehoiakim, he's been in prison for 37 years. This guy's been on his best behavior, model prisoner, no doubt. I'm going to show, cut a break for this guy. So he unlocks the prison door and lets him out. He's kind to him. He uh, gives him favored status among the captives. He changes his prison uniform, puts on civilian clothes. He gets to eat with the king of Babylon the rest of his life in his presence. He gets a regular food allowance. In other words, as far as his possible under the circumstances he gets the royal treatment he does and he's a king after all now there's different views on this section some people see in this that this is an indication of a greater theological point they say well this is an indication that the kings of the davidic kings are still alive and well that the davidic covenant is still alive and well and that will not be rejected even though judah was judged well, it's, uh, the, the, king of the, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 is still alive and well, regardless of circumstances, first of all, regardless of this. So whether this point is being made or not, I don't know. 
But I, I, tell, I tell you this, if nothing else, I do believe there's a contrast being presented here, a contrast of hope versus one of hopelessness. We just saw a ton of hopelessness, didn't we? All kinds of disaster. And right before this, you have this little thing where Gedaliah gets killed. Boom. They can't even, they can't even get it right with, after they've been destroyed. But now we see a ray of hope. Second Kings ends on a hopeful note, even though it's just a small ray. We don't want to miss it. But there's more. Go to, second, go to Jeremiah 29. I know you're Jeremiah 36. I'm pushing you. Go to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. Now, a letter. And, and Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is writing a letter to the captives. Did you know that? He wrote a letter to the captives in Babylon and gave them some hope and, and, and said a lot of things. But look at Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you, good word is called here, to bring you back to this place. <clears throat> for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a what? A hope, right? It's a message. He promises them, literally, restoration to their own land. This is a message of hope. Now, if, if Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11 are your life verses, which they are many people, I apologize to you because that does, has nothing to do with your future whatsoever, okay? Unless you're in captivity in Babylon right now. If you're in captivity in Babylon, then maybe you can apply this to your situation. But if you're not, and you probably aren't because you're sitting before me right now and you seem to be in, in a state of freedom, then this is not about their future, about your future. This is about their future. He's going to give them a future and a hope. After captivity, he says, Jeremiah, the guy who's prophesied condemnation and judgment, all the way through, says, oh, by the way, there is hope for the future. You're going to be restored back to your land. That's a great encouraging message for them. Tremendous message. Look at 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36. Go to the final two verses. We've looked at the, we talked about 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles being, you know, corresponding to each other throughout this whole series we've done. We looked at the last two verses of 2 Kings. Look at the last two verses of 2 Chronicles 36, the last chapter in 2 Chronicles. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, pagan king, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to do what? To build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. These are the final verses of Second Chronicles, and it ends on a hopeful note. Just like Second Kings did. This is after the captivity is over. After the seven years of captivity in Babylon are over, and Cyrus says, I want, you, I want to be re- rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That temple that Babylon destroyed, burnt down and all that, you guys go back and build it again. Judgment upon Judah is not the end. Babylonian captivity is not the end. There is no end. There's only hope for the future. And then look at one more passage and we'll quit. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. Since we're looking at strange 
sections and things of that nature. Matthew one twelve. how about in the middle of the genealogy? Now, this is where you're gonna, some of you people have failed to read this in your Bible reading because you don't like genealogies. We're going to read it right now, okay? Well, at least half of it. Matthew one twelve. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. These people are going to test me with the names again. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihu. Abihu, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Methan. Methan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom what? Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David, the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the time of, from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Is God's plan finished because of the failure of Judah and Israel? Is it finished? No, he does not pin his hopes on fallen men. He doesn't do that to see his sovereign plan through. He himself sees his sovereign plan through. He does it. You know, let me quote Del Ralph Davis, my favorite Old Testament preacher. I know you don't know who he is. Great Old Testament preacher. Listen to what he says here about this whole situation. He said, it is, it is not your righteousness, but Yahweh's stubbornness that brings redemption. It's not your righteousness, but Yahweh's stubbornness that brings redemption. The Lord says stubbornly, stuck to his promises all the way through to see to it that the Messiah comes into the world. It doesn't matter how foolish the men, has been, men have been. It doesn't matter how sinful and evil they have been. It doesn't matter if it all seemed to fall apart in the Old Testament. It, all, it doesn't matter how much they try to derail the plan. The Lord is stubborn enough to bring it all to pass. He has brought this to pass. Now, Matthew 1 resumes a story that seems so bleak at the end of 2 Kings. The story is not over. It's not over. Here we have the greatest, cope of, the greatest hope of all, the greatest encouragement of all, the Messiah. He's going to do what no king in Judah or Israel could ever do. He's going to live a sinless life in total compliance with the Father, unlike the kings of Judah and Israel. Total compliance. He's going to fully and completely obey the word of God and hold it in the highest regard, unlike the kings of Israel and Judah. He's going to fulfill all the scriptures prophesied of him, and in him alone, there's going to be lasting hope for both Jew and Gentile, for everybody. The fall of the divided kingdom of Judah and Israel shows us why we need a Savior. It shows us why we need a Savior. We're utter failures apart from Christ. Absolutely utter failures apart from Christ. We're going to remain dead in our sins apart from Christ. We are headed for destruction apart from Christ. Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is not in people. It's not in leaders. It's not in governments. It's not in any resources we possess. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew one twenty one says, He will save His people from their sins. Only He will save His people from their sins. Our hope is in the Lord. This week, let's keep our eyes on him and look to him for our hope. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful tonight for your word again and for what it teaches. And we're thankful, Lord, that even though we see so much disaster and death and destruction going on because we are who we are, sinners, Lord, we're thankful that tonight we're sinners saved by grace and that we can come to you. We're thankful that our hope is in the Lord. We're grateful for that, Lord. There is no hope outside of you. Pray we'll look to you, to the people in our church tonight that maybe are hurting, have problems, have difficulties all kinds of issues. Pray that they'll look to you this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.